you have your Bibles with you, I would invite you to turn to the book of 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel is sort of in the, uh, the, the middle, the first third, I suppose, of your Bible, um, the historical books. And if you have been with us at Christ Church for any length of time, you know that my practice is to preach consecutively through books of the Bible. And so the Lord himself has ordered up an action-packed story for the fathers this morning, made you, your wives come with you to church for an action event, so I can't guarantee that you can take her then to the latest blockbuster at the movie house. But for now, we're going to have a story of intrigue and, and murder and judgment, and guys like these sorts of things. So we, are, we have come to the section uh, in 2 Samuel where we are now at chapter 4. This is a bit shorter a chapter than we've seen in the past but it is still very helpful to us and contains uh, God's Word for us today, His wisdom for us. So if you would please give attention to the reading of God's Holy Word. For the Word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The Word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the Word of the Lord is completely authoritative. 2 Samuel 4, beginning... At verse 1. When Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed, and all Israel was dismayed. Now Saul's son had two men who were captains of raiding bands. The name of the one was Baana, and the name of the other Rechab, sons of Ramon, a man of Benjamin from Beeroth. For Beeroth also is counted part of Benjamin. The Beerothites fled to Gitaim and have been sojourners there to this day. Saul, or excuse me, Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. Now the sons of Ramon the Beerothite, Rechab and Baana, set out, and about the heat of the day they came to the house of Ishbosheth, as he was taking his noonday rest. And they came into the midst of the house as if to get wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and Baana his brother escaped. When they came into the house, as he laid on his bed in his bedroom, they struck him and put him to death and beheaded him. They took his head and went by way of the Arabah all night and brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. And they said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my lord the king this day on Saul and his offspring. But David answered Rechab and Baana his brother, the sons of Ramon the Berethite, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. When one told me, behold, Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more, when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house, on his bed, shall I not now require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? 
And David commanded his young men, and they killed them, and cut off their hands and feet, and hanged them beside the pool at Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth, and buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon us. Lord, we ask this morning that you would speak to us in your word. Your word is truth, O Lord. And in your word, we find your character, an account of your actions, and who you are. But more, Lord, we also find the great debt that we owe to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we find the great redemption that you have accomplished through Jesus. We pray this morning, Lord, that you would bless us, that by the power of your Spirit you would illuminate our minds, that we might learn from your word, and that we might give you all the glory. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. Well, this chapter 4 is a shorter chapter than where we were last week in chapter 3, but it is quite as uncomfortable. It's a chapter that's filled with intrigue, murder, and harsh justice. It is the last step in David's waiting on the Lord to establish his kingdom. But it also teaches us about the world around us, how we are to react to the world, and where our hope and our trust are. And so what I'd like us to see this morning from this text are three vignettes, three portions of this story. The first thing that we see is a foul murder. In verses 1 through 7, we have an account of the foul murder of Ishbosheth. And then the second thing we see in verses 8 and 9 is a theological battle that ensues. A theological battle between Ishbosheth's captains and David. And then finally, in verses 10 through 12, we see justice dispensed by David the king. David is just and righteous in his rulings. A foul murder, a theological battle, and justice dispensed. Let's begin then by looking at the start of chapter 4 and verse 1. When Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed, and all Israel was dismayed. So what we are introduced to here at the very beginning of this chapter is the weakness of the house of Saul. Things have just collapsed in the capital of Manahim. As we saw last week, Abner is now dead. Abner, the general who was the driving force behind the northern kingdom. But more than that, remember, Saul is dead. Jonathan is dead. Jonathan's brothers are dead. Everyone who has strength and experience in battle is dead. Ishbosheth's rump kingdom is hiding from the Philistines. They have no leader to lead them out into battle. And further than that, the people of this kingdom have already agreed to leave and decide with David. We saw that last week in chapter 3, verse 17. This kingdom is not long for this world. So what is a man like Ishbosheth to do? 
But what he does is his courage fails him. His, literally in the Hebrew, his hands dropped. He gives up. He doesn't know what to do. He's afraid. There's no one that he can turn to. Everyone around him could see this. And you see that we, not only is Ishbosheth afraid, all Israel was dismayed. This is a very strong word. They are terrified. They are quaking in their boots. I imagine that Ishbosheth is expecting David and his army to show up at the city walls any moment now and to take over the kingdom by force. And it's interesting because in a story that we have seen so far that is full of strong men who are struggling for power, David, Abner, Joab, here the highlight is on Ishbosheth, who's weak, helpless. We might describe Ishbosheth in modern terms as a patsy. He is not a man of action. He's the sort of person that events just happen to him. Things occur on him. He doesn't force events. He doesn't make things happen. He's not bold or courageous. As a matter of fact, the one time that Ishbosheth speaks up, it's a disaster. He comes to Abner, and we can almost imagine, because of the way we see Ishbosheth, in a, in a stammering tongue with, with hesitancy, he says to Abner something like, um, uh, Abner, why are you going into my father's concubines? Isn't that a way that someone shows that they think they're the heir to the kingdom? Well, and you can remember exactly what happens. In a split moment, Abner flies into a rage and he says, if that's what you think of me, I quit. And by the way, I'm going over to David. And by the way, I'm going to take your whole kingdom with me. Abner basically says, I made you king and I can unmake you king. Ishbosheth is not a man who seeks power. As a matter of fact, the reason he's alive is because he did not go off to the battle of Mount Gilboa. So he probably has physical weakness in addition to his fearfulness, but he is a weak man. And it's not like there's anyone else around to help him. In verse 4, we are introduced to the character of Mephibosheth. You may remember Mephibosheth from other Bible accounts. He is Jonathan's lame son that David takes mercy on and takes into his home and makes a place at his table to feed Mephibosheth and to honor Mephibosheth. And it seems odd that he's just sort of inserted here, doesn't it? We might even expect a parenthesis. We're talking about Ishbosheth, and all of a sudden, here's a five-year-old lame boy. What's he doing in the story? And I think what's going on here is our author is highlighting for us another weak figure in the house of Saul. Another tragic figure. Mephibosheth was dropped by his nurse when the bad news of Jonathan's death came. Now, you have to imagine what is going on here when Saul and his army were defeated 
Everyone who was in the capital would be afraid and would need to flee because the Philistines would be coming any moment to raid and plunder the capital. And so the nurse scoops up Mephibosheth and on the way out she drops him. Now we don't know exactly what happened, but I can tell you on good authority that there were no orthopedic surgeons in the days of Mephibosheth. And so likely as he fell, his ankle or his leg bone or both were broken very badly and were not set properly in the flight from the capital. And from that time forward, he would have difficulty walking. He could not run anywhere. He tells us this later in this book. He could not go out into battle. He was weak. He always will be weak. Unlike Ishbosheth, he can't even find courage. He'll never be able to go out into battle. And so, from the perspective of Ishbosheth and Mephibosheth, life is just not fair. They have no hope. There's no one coming to save them. And clearly, Ishbosheth does not turn to the Lord. He's actually been resisting the Lord and God's promise to David to make him the king. Do you have times in your life when life is just not fair? Do you see your inability at times to resolve problems? Are there times when events just seem to overtake you? You're not ready for them. You don't know what to do. That's true. Life is hard. Life is unfair. Now, it's Father's Day, so I'll, I'll take a moment here, but I think this is perhaps... The earliest wisdom that a father can pass down to a child. Because one of a child's prime complaints in life is when something doesn't go their way, they look up and they say, that's not fair. And a dad will screw up all the compassion he has and say something like, son, get used to it. Life isn't fair. That's the way that life is. And I think we can commiserate with Ishbosheth and Mephibosheth. But the difference is, for you, life is not without hope. Not when you can turn to the Lord and trust Him. The writer here of 2 Samuel is giving us a picture of the total weakness of the house of Saul because it highlights the wickedness of what is now going to happen. We're next introduced to Baana and Rechab. They are captains in Ishbosheth's army. They go out and they lead raids, the text tells us, much like what Joab did in the previous chapter. They go out and attack other enemy tribes and villages and bring home plunder. And they should have been amongst the most loyal of Ishbosheth's followers because we are told specifically that they are a part of the tribe of Benjamin. Now you will recall that the 11 tribes who sided with Ishbosheth, Saul's son, one of them was the tribe of Benjamin and that was the tribe that Saul was descended from. And so if any one of the tribes should have been loyal to Saul's family, it should be the Benjamites. After all, they've got one of their own on the throne. But our author here 
gives us a hint of what is to come. He gets in a subtle dig. He tells us about the place where they are from. It's a place called Beeroth. And he says Beeroth is counted as a part of Benjamin because the Beerothites have fled to Gitaim. Now who are the Beerothites? If you go back to the book of Joshua, you will see that one of the places where the Gibeonites lived was Beeroth. That's important because the Gibeonites were the ones who came and approached Joshua. You remember the story. They took stale bread and they took ratty clothes and they came in and they said, will you please make a peace treaty with us? And Joshua said, no, I'm not supposed to make a peace treaty with anyone who lives close to me. And they said, no, we live way far away. Look it, this bread was hot from the oven when we set out. And now it's stale, hard as a rock. And our clothes were brand new when we started on this journey. Look how worn out they are. And Joshua doesn't go to the Lord and he makes a treaty and they settle in these lands. And God tells him he has to keep that covenant that he's made with the Gibeonites. But Saul being the wicked king that he is, saw riches and good land. And he attacked the Gibeonites and tossed them out of their cities, including Beeroth. And he settled his family and his people there. And so it's very likely that these two men, Baana and Rechab, and their father, Ramon, got their money through a shakedown. They got their position through wickedness, stealing the land of others. That gives us a hint as to what this family's like. Well, these men can see the handwriting on the wall like everyone else. But unlike others who are frozen with fear, they are men of action. They think themselves big men in Beeroth. But remember the context that we've already seen. Everyone around them is weak. Their main challenge here is a man without courage and a crippled boy. And so, Ralph Davis, I think, gives us good insight into how we should initially view these two men. He says, whatever Baana and Rechab do, then will hardly be heroic, but will be in the class of a junior high ruffian who beats up five-year-olds. They like to pick on people weaker than themselves. And so they strike out in a most cowardly way. They go into the palace in the middle of the day when it was hot and everyone is resting or sleeping, including the king. They easily gain entrance to the king's palace. They have a story. We're, we're looking for wheat. We're just looking for wheat. And you can imagine that at this point in time, military protocol is not at a very high level because everyone is assuming that the kingdom is lost. And so they come in. One translation gives us a little bit of color that says the person who's sitting at the door had fallen asleep. And so they, they go past her and into the king's bedroom. And they stab Ishbosheth in the stomach. Now, now, are you sensing a pattern here? How did Abner die? How did Asahel die? It seems like in this day, they really like to stab people in the stomach. But I think that's a helpful piece of information as well, because in a day before hospitals and transfusions, if you stab someone in the stomach, they're going to bleed out to death. 
You don't have to worry about your knife hitting a ribcage bone or glancing off the shoulder. If you gut them, they are going to bleed to death. There is no hope for them. And there's a sense even in which it's a cruel death because it's not quick. You bleed to death. So they kill Ishbosheth and then they escape. But then in verse 7, we have a repetition. When they came into the house, as he lay on his bed in his bedroom, they struck him and put him to death and beheaded him. They took his head and went the way, went by the way of Arabah all night. And you might ask yourself, why is this being repeated? If you were a higher critical scholar, you would say, oh, this is proof that the Bible isn't true because nobody writes the same thing twice. This is just made up. Someone's inserted this. But the truth is, is that this is the way of Hebrew narrative. They describe something, and then they repeat it with additional important details. The example you might be most familiar with is in Genesis 1, we have the account of God creating man. And then in Genesis 2, we have a repetition of that account with more details, how God created man, Adam, and Eve, and how he did it. That's what's going on here. Well, why is this extra detail included? I think the biblical writer is anticipating these men and their meeting with David. Because in their eyes, they are bold, daring, strong, and decisive. But that's not really who they are, are they? They're really cowardly. And mercenary. They're not principled. They didn't challenge Ishbosheth to a duel. They didn't even let him have a weapon to defend himself. He wasn't even awake when they attacked him. This is about the most cowardly way that you can kill someone. They attack someone who's a weak man while he's asleep in his bed. What kind of warrior does that? Now, if you remember Joab being condemned for deceiving Abner and killing him, catching him off his guard, what do we make of these men? Now, this gives us some insight. Action is not everything. Motive matters. Principles matter. They could have gone over to David. As a matter of fact, plenty of other people had. But instead, they wanted to impress David. And they thought that David would be just as wickedly minded as they were. And so, having done the deed, they flee. Notice the detail. They escaped. They're not bold at all. And they're going to come up to David. They go by a deserted path through the Arabah for what is probably two days, 80 miles. And they are prepared for David with theology. When they reach David, they pull out their prize, the head. Now, now, why do they do this? It could not have been pleasant to travel for two days in the heat of Israel with a decaying head in a bag alongside you. Why do they do this? Well, the first and most obvious reason is proof. No one can dispute that Ishbosheth is dead. But secondly, 
There is a sense of drama all about this. If David were a man like them, he would rejoice to see Ishbosheth's head. He would find it perhaps even humorous that they have his head. People who are corrupted by sin assume that others are also. That's why, as followers of Jesus Christ, people who are around us wonder why we don't act like them. It actually offends them. They want to be cheered on. This is a great difficulty that you will face each and every day. I think of something that is currently in effect. A few years ago, a half dozen or eight years ago, there was a, a dispute, an argument about whether or not gay marriage should be legal. And Christians made the argument for the sanctity of marriage one man, one woman for life, as established by God. Now, you can't open an email from a company without being attacked by a gay pride banner. And that's because it's not about acceptance. It's not about being left alone. It's about wanting to be celebrated, to be encouraged in sin. And that's just one sin. There are heterosexual sins. There are financial sins. There are violent sins that our society wants to see celebrated. And when as followers of Jesus Christ, we say no, that's going to get you criticized. That's going to get you abused. That's going to get people telling you you're crazy. That's what we see here. And so it's even more than that because here, these men come with a theological explanation for what they have done. It's not just that they have taken advantage of a sleeping king. It's not just that they want a choice reward from David. No, they remind David that his enemy who sought his life, is now dead. David, you don't have to worry anymore. We've saved you. We have acted on behalf of God. You don't have to worry anymore because the Lord has avenged, in verse 8. The Lord has avenged you. And how has he done that? Through our hands, David. You're welcome. We've done God's work. Do you see what they're doing here? They have blood on their hands, and they think they can wash it away with a theological excuse. We're not murderous thugs, they would say. We are the righteous hand of God. God needs us to bring about his purpose. They are using theology to make themselves the good guys here. Now, we see this all the time. We see it in the pastor who abandons God's word in order to, quote, better reach people. We see it in the Christian who deflects accountability for his sin by reminding us of the biblical truth that aren't we all sinners after all? You will be tempted to use God as an excuse for your actions. But theology is not an argument to be brought out to make sin more agreeable. God and his word are not to be manipulated. They are to be obeyed. And David understands this. Rechab and Baana are hoping that David will see things their way. Of course they do. 
They think David is a man like they are, that he'll be glad to be rid of Ishbosheth no matter what the circumstances. But David knows he doesn't need murderous thugs in order to be safe. Saul, after all, had sought his life for many years. And so his answer in verse 9 makes this clear. As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. It's as if David is saying, you don't need to make a big deal about how you saved me. I didn't need your help. The Lord is the one who has redeemed me out of every adversity. Not just some adversities, not just light adversities, but out of every adversity. And so David challenges their opportunistic theology with a Bible lesson of his own. These thugs show up on a weekday morning and claim that David is indebted to them. And if David didn't know and trust the Lord as his Redeemer, he might have bought into it. But instead, he remembers his true Redeemer who has promised and delivered over and over again to rescue him. So do you know God's promises to you? When you do, you will be able to better face the events of this world. You will have confidence in the face of fears. You can properly judge the actions of others. And you can live your life by following the Lord. This true theology is not just for kings or for Bible people. It's for you as well. We are living in a world where there are great dangers and troubles. And people are lining up for the job of your Savior. Politicians, activists, economists, even teachers. But you only need one Savior. A Savior who can truly save and who has promised never to leave you nor to forsake you. Jesus can deliver you from your sin from your fears, and even from death. Don't fall for the lie that you need self-serving henchmen to protect you. Believe in Jesus. That takes us to our third vignette. We come now back to Rechab and Baana standing before David, and we see justice dispensed. Now, we, of course, can't see David's face, but they can. They've got to know they're in trouble here. They would have expected to see a smirk or a smile or maybe even laughter coming from David, knowing that Ishbosheth is gone. But David is clearly not pleased with this. He is not smiling. I could just imagine them standing there with sweat running down their brow and down their cheek as they realize that they're in a boatload of trouble. The tables have turned. They have completely misjudged the situation. And the narrator gives us an advance hint of what's coming in the beginning of verse 9. But David answered Rechab and Baana, his brother, the sons of Ramon the Berethite. And as you read that, does it strike you as odd? Why are we repeating their names again? 
Why are we telling us again who their father is and where they're from? This is like the fourth time in the last 30 seconds we've heard this. Why again? And I think what the author is doing here is he's letting us see that this is a legal formula. This is the equivalent of what we see in our courtrooms of when the bailiff says, may the defendant rise now as the jury gives the verdict. They are about to be judged. And David starts with the story of the Amalekite. He says, he thought he was bringing me good news that I would be happy to see that Saul was dead. But what he didn't know is that I am a man of justice and righteousness. I had the opportunity to kill Saul several times, David would say. But following God's law was more important to me than even my own safety. Now they begin to really sweat and maybe even have teeth chatter. Because verse 11 begins with just one little Hebrew word. But we translate it. How much more? Now, can you imagine what they're feeling now? David's just told them he executed this other guy. And by the way, you're worse. Ooh. That's what David has set it up here. He claimed to kill Saul at Saul's own request. How much worse is it to kill a king in his bed, David says. And now this is, I think, a fascinating point. David shouldn't have known that detail. How does David know that they killed Ishbosheth in his bed while he slept? The only way that David could know that is if they had told him. And the only reason they would have told him is if they would have thought that was a positive. That that's the best part of the story. They were bragging. They're saying to David, look at how smart we are. We caught Ishbosheth when he didn't even have a chance. He was taking a snooze and we barged in on him and gutted him. Aren't we brilliant commanders? Tell us how many people you're going to put us in charge of, David. Because you need guys like us. No, they didn't hide it. They actually flaunted it. And so David tells them, this is not what we do in my kingdom. My kingdom is a kingdom of justice and of righteousness. And David sends a message to everyone. He tells the young men, execute them. Cut off their hands and their feet and put them up on the big billboard in Hebron. So that whenever anybody walks by, they say, whoa. What did those guys do? And they're told, they murdered the king. You don't murder the king. As a matter of fact, you don't murder someone in my kingdom. If you do, you meet justice. And so what David wants everyone to know is first that he had no part at all in the killing of Ishbosheth. Secondly, he wants them to know that in his kingdom, righteousness triumphs over expediency. The ends do not justify the means. How often have you been tempted to do that? Now you may not have said it that bluntly, I'm going to do this anyway because the end justifies the means, but you, you make excuses for your actions by saying, well in the end, it'll turn out alright. Or in the end, it'll be better than it was before. So, 
you know this is how the saying goes, you got to break a few eggs to make an omelet, right? Not when the eggs are God's law. Not when we're called as followers of Christ to be righteous and to be like Jesus. And thirdly, I think what David does is he wants us to see that he will wait on the Lord and trust him to keep his promise. David doesn't need any assistance from murderers. He knows that God will keep his promise. And so this is an imperfect picture of what we hope for, isn't it? Have you ever looked in an old mirror, one that might be tarnished or have some, some uh, warps in it or maybe a few cracks, and you look in it and you, you don't see yourself exactly as you are because that mirror is imperfect. But you know it's you and not somebody else. You can recognize yourself in the mirror. That's what we're seeing here in David. We know, and we'll see plenty of times in this book, that David is not perfect. In just a few chapters, we're going to see David abandon righteousness and justice for his own advantage in the story of Uriah the Hittite. But don't let David's flaws rob you of the biblical principle here. David is a type of Jesus. And Jesus doesn't have David's flaws. Jesus is completely without sin, the Bible tells us. Jesus never had a lie in his mouth. He never sought his own good at the expense of others. In fact, he did the exact opposite. So when we see justice enacted here on earth, we should be thankful that it gives us a picture of what perfect justice will look like in Jesus' kingdom. The Lord is not just in control of Hebron a few thousand years ago. He is in control of Katie right now. And the day will come when all the earth will experience justice and righteousness. Now there's one more thing for you to see. That God brings about his promise in spite of all the hindrances that are placed in his path. We've seen wicked men try to stop God's promise or to manipulate it for their own advantage. Abner tried to claim that God needed him and therefore David should praise and honor Abner. Abner's position was, without Abner, God is helpless. And Joab tried to put his own desires ahead of God's promise. He was unconcerned about the consequences. And now here in this chapter, Baana and Rechab tried to establish the kingdom through injustice. And through all of this, God is at work. His plan will not fail. His promise cannot be lost. His kingdom is sure. So when you see injustice and unrighteousness in your world, remember God has not abandoned us. He is at work. He will not fail. His promises are always yea and amen in Jesus Christ. This is a difficult story. We may wonder why God chose to put it in his word. 
we may wonder how we can benefit from a story about deceit, murder, and trying to show that the end justifies the means, and then top it all off with a brutal execution. This story should give us a high view of justice. It should teach us that it is never right to do wrong. Because if we lose that, we lose something of the gospel. The gospel is about Jesus satisfying God's justice to save sinners. Remember in the garden when Jesus asked if there was any other way that this could be accomplished? There wasn't one. And so Jesus paid the price. He did not shrink back from it. Jesus died so that you might be spared the justice you deserve for your sins. God does not ignore your sin. He has done away with it in Christ. If you believe in Jesus Christ, God must forgive your sins. It's the only just thing He can do. The Scripture tells us that He is just and the justifier of the sinner. Believe in Jesus now so that you might know that forgiveness that comes when your debt has been paid in full by the only true Savior. Let's pray.